If you're here for the first time, welcome. My name's Steve. I'm one of the, the leaders. It is great to have you with us this morning. I know that for a few of you, it's the first time in Liverpool. It's the first time um, visiting churches in Liverpool. So a big, big warm welcome to you. We begin a new series in the book 1 Peter. Now, let me clarify. Our intention was to do a series in the book of Exodus. That was our intention. But we made a decision that we were going to leave that till after Christmas. Um, and we're going to be working through this wonderful letter that the Apostle Peter writes to a bunch of churches in what we know as Turkey. Now, so if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Peter. It's in the New Testament. The verses will be up on the screen. Um, and follow me. I'm just going to be reading the first two verses. The first two verses of 1 Peter, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable to you, our God and our Redeemer. We ask, Holy Spirit, you would take the words of the Father, stir our affections for Jesus the Son, for your glory. So figure out who we are as a country, who we are. Now, it's interesting. The census isn't a new thing. We know, if you know your Bibles and if you know anything of the Christmas story, actually Mary and Joseph had to go back, remember? Had to go back to Bethlehem. Why? Because the emperor at the time wanted to count how many people were in his kingdom. Now, in the UK census, this year, there have been all sorts of questions about population, sex, identification, marriage, religious beliefs, and there have been multiple variations on how you can answer those questions in our culture when we live today. Now, the findings of the census, you, we're going to get like a little finding in March 2022, and then we'll get the full report in March 2023. Now, before you think that I'm so, so, some sort of statistic nerd, I'm not, but I am interested to know what the findings are. I'm interested to know, and I'm intrigued to see the changes in how people identify, and how people associate with religious beliefs and organizations. And I'm really interested to see how many people now say that they're not Christian, when maybe they did 10 years ago. See, if you look at the census, 2001 compared to 2011, they found that there was a de decrease in people identifying as Christians from 72% of the population to 59%. And there was an increase in those reporting no religion at all from 15% to 25% of the population. I wonder what it's going to be like now. 10 years on from 2011. Now, folks, the statistics don't give us a clear picture because being Christian, being a Christian, for many is associated to, to, to being British. We have an understanding that we live in a Christian country. Many of us have family ties, whether that's to the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church. We have cultural connections regarding maybe the schools that we attended to or the events that we've gone to in life, whether that's, whether that's christenings or bar mitzvahs or, 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 or anything that will bring some sort of association to what it is to be religious 
and for us in Britain for what it is to be Christian. But it's also because of continued connections and symbols that we have because of a time called Christendom. Christendom. Now, Christendom is a time when the church, inverted commas, had an influential seat at the center of societal makeup and the center of social conscience. Now, folks, what we think about this, whether that's a good thing, a bad thing, a terrifying thing, that's a conversation for another time. But what is obvious, what is obvious and what is evident, and increasingly so in all areas of society, is that the church, and when I say church, I say Bible-believing, truth-honoring, gospel-centered, Jesus-exalting Christians are being pushed to the margins of society. Outside of the cultural or tribal badge of being Christian, inverted commas, people are increasingly disassociating themselves with the teachings of the Bible and also those who believe that the Bible is the word of God and it is good news for humanity. And this disassociation is on a rapid trajectory. Rapid. And it's a rapid trajectory to a common ground of misunderstanding, a common ground, ground of rejection, and a common ground of maligning of any biblical perspective and any biblical principles for life and for flourishing. Especially around these things, humanity, what it is to be human, sexuality, sex, in terms of biological sex and gender, around marriage, around the view of self, around an understanding of personhood, around an understanding of justice and authority and freedom. And folks, that disassociation is coupled with this, this, this increasing disinterest in Christianity in churches that's also connected to a suspicion of those who call themselves Christian and therefore because people are moving towards more self-orientated philosophies and ideologies being a Christian and living as the church is becoming increasingly more difficult it's interesting in 2018 a UK employment tribunal that was taken um, led by the department for work and pensions dealt with a case of a christian doctor who had been dismissed because of his conscientious belief that sex is immutable it's unchangeable and the ruling was this and i quote belief in genesis 1 verse 27 lack of belief in transgenderism and conscientious objection to transgenderism in our judgment are incompatible with human dignity folks let me sum that up what was said in that tribunal was this to hold to biblical truth and understanding of the bible is incompatible with what it means to show human beings dignity Wow. To believe in Genesis 1 verses 27 means you cannot show human beings dignity according to the world that we live in. 
And not only that, folks, there is now a requirement, and increasingly so a requirement, that we need to affirm all other ideologies and understandings of life and flourishing whilst keeping our own private if it contradicts or differs with the popular opinion in order for us to even apply for jobs, in order for people to even engage in business. It has become a question that business people will ask of people of the church when they want to do business with the church. When the business has nothing to do with these ideologies and an understanding of what it is for life and flourishing. Folks, this is the reality of our context. If you hold to biblical truth and you are a Christian, understand this, the increasingly more like a stranger daily. I feel increasingly in the minority of popular and public opinion and thinking and anxiety about what is going to happen is more prevalent. From the get-go, as we look at 1 Peter, I want us to know this. Being a follower of Jesus, being part of the people of God, rubs up against our society and our culture. And it's hard. It's hard. And what we have in front of us is a letter. A letter from the Apostle Peter, one of the disciples, one of the twelve And he is writing to a group of churches in Asia Minor, in a place that we now know as Turkey. A group of Christian people who are experiencing the same issues as we are today. Yes, the details may be different, but the rejection and the marginalization is fundamentally the same. See, if you've got your Bibles, just flick over to chapter 2, verse 4. It won't be on the screen, so if you've got to just flick over. And what Peter says to them is this. He says, look, the rejection that you are experiencing, the rejection that is happening is because you are building your lives up on somebody who everybody else is rejecting. That person is described there in 2 verse, two verse 4. As, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone who is rejected by men but in the sight of God is chosen and precious. And then it goes on to say that you as Christian people are trying to build your lives on him who is described as the cornerstone. But Jesus, who is the foundation of all life and all flourishing and all what it is to be a Christian, the rest of the world is rejected. In fact, Jesus is a rock of offense and a stone of stumbling. What he says is, look, the very person that you build your life upon and the truth of him and what that means for you, everybody else is rejected. In fact, he is offensive to them and he is also insignificant to them. See, it's a stumbling block to the culture's ideology. ideology. It's a stumbling block to what it is to understand who we are as human beings. It's a stumbling block to what it is to engage in relationships what we are worth, what success is, what truth is, what self is. See, folks, that was the truth for them. And it is the truth for us now. So people might say, well, I haven't got a problem with Jesus. When they hear his words, they understand the truth of the Bible, they will. They will. And we live in a culture that does everything it can to dumb down and drown out Deep, real, existential questions about life, death, about God, about true satisfaction, and about joy. Yeah, 
we flitter around them, but we don't go deep. See, we live in a world that doesn't want to hear or deal with it. Doesn't want to hear God's people proclaim the name of Jesus. And as a result, we are being pushed further to the margins. But the theme of 1 Peter, folks, is not an encouragement from Peter to the churches to encourage them to hide. No, no. It's not one of protection. It's not one of creating a holy huddle and a cozy Christian subculture. No, Peter will be reminding these churches of who they are. It's interesting, if you follow from chapter 2, verse 4, he says, look, the very person that you build your life upon is being rejected. But I want to remind you, you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are the God that people has chosen. You are a people who did not know the mercy of God, but now you know the mercy of God. See, through 1 Peter... To churches that are struggling with hostility because of who they believe in and how they're going to live, Peter is saying, I want to encourage you in the midst of that to know who you are. And to not only know who you are, but also be encouraged to continue to live for Jesus and as the church, whatever the cultural tone and temperature that you find yourself in. So we're going to see that, folks, over the next eight weeks. We're going to see what it looks like to live for Jesus in the midst of a hostile culture. We're going to see how that is lived out as a Christian community. What it looks like in the context of relationship with the state. In the context of marriage with each other. And also outside of the church. So by way of introduction, I want to look at four things in these two verses. Four things. I want us to see hope. I want us to see the reality of being God's strangers. I want us to see the definite plan of God, and I want us to hear a prayer to help us walk. So number one, hope. Here's the hope. Look at who is writing this letter, and look at who he is writing to. Peter was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was one of the disciples. He was a fisherman. All right, the understanding is he was barely, he, he was big probably, he definitely had a beard, he definitely had a beard, probably a little bit, I grew it out especially for this series, big beard like this, barely guy, probably because they didn't have Gillette Mac 5 and all that sort of stuff to shave, but he was a big, probably a guy, what we do know is personality was big, he'd shoot from the hip. But it was Peter interestingly who preached in the power of the spirit after jesus ascended to be with the father and explained to all the jewish people the israel people that they had killed the messiah that they had been waiting for see it was jesus it was peter in the strength of the spirit stood before his own people when everyone assumed he was an uneducated man which he was but in the power of the spirit said look you have killed the very person that you've been waiting for. But this is the same Peter who avoided discomfort. (laughs) See, when Jesus first said that he was going to die and rise again, it was Peter who rebuked him for saying that. That's not going to happen to you. 
It was the same Peter that when Jesus was arrested and was taken to be crucified, it was the same Peter who denied Jesus when he was spotted and pointed out by local people during the trial. He denied, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. Even when he told Jesus that he wouldn't do it. It's the same Peter that despite knowing all the scriptures, had to have special intervention from God to deal with his prejudice towards Gentile people, towards those people that were not Jews, those people who were Israelis. See, his perspective was that if you were not part of the people of God, if you were not Jewish, you were unclean. However, God revealed to him that he, God, shows no partiality in the good news of Jesus is for all people. And the forgiveness of sins and salvation is for all people, whether they are Jew or whether they are Gentile, if they call on his name. But it was the same Peter, despite knowing the scriptures, despite having God revealed to him, who had to be publicly rebuked by Paul, the apostle, because he was happy to eat and socialize with Gentiles until certain Jews came along and therefore he separated himself out of fear of what they would think and what they would say. But not only that, other people followed him and his example and acted in the same hypocritical way. Folks, here's some hope. The hope is in these two verses that Peter the disciple who avoided discomfort and had to be challenged and rebuked because of his prejudice, is now the one who is writing to the churches made up of Gentile Christians. Do you see that? Do you see that transformation? Do you see that change? And what is he doing? Encouraging Christians to live in the midst and stand firm in the midst of hostility when his default throughout all his life to this point was to avoid discomfort. There is hope. So we've got a guy that understands what it's like to live in the midst of hostility, in the midst to be pointed out, in the midst to be accused. And also a guy who knows what it is to fail and knows what it is to be weak and knows what it is to run. See, in chapter 5, verse 10, what we see that Peter will encourage the churches, and this is what he says to them. He says, look, in the midst of all this hostility, the God of all grace will restore you, confirm you, and establish you. Let's just sit there. Folks, whatever you're dealing with because you're a believer, whatever trial and suffering, whether that's in the midst of your blood family, whether that's in the midst of your work, whether that's in the midst of what it is just to engage with neighbors and friends, and you feel the hostility of the world pushing you to the edge of the margins, this is the truth that Peter says to the churches, and he says to us, the God of all faith, grace will restore us, confirm us, and establish us. Amen? Amen. Folks, that is good news. But Peter doesn't only just say that to these churches because he knows that to be true. He says that to these churches because he experienced that tangibly in his own life. See, even though, even though Peter had denied Jesus, even though he'd shot off the hip, even though he said he didn't know him, even though he was prejudiced, even though he dealt with his own misunderstanding and his own issues with discomfort, it was the Lord Jesus that after his denial restored him, confirmed him, established him, set him up as the shepherd of the flock, and in his strength, it is now Peter 
who leads and loves Gentile Christians in the midst of hostility. Folks, straight away, in the first line, we see wonderful hope that only comes about through the gospel. That we have a God who is gracious and faithful to his calling of those who he says, come and follow me. I will never leave you, whatever you do. Amen? Whatever your experience, whatever the hostility, there is wonderful hope in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, even if it feels that he has walked away. Amen? Just me then. Number two, the reality of being God's strangers. A few months ago, I told you a story about when I went to Moscow in Russia. You remember that, those who were here? And I was sort of left on my own. I was left on my own. And it wasn't in the center of Moscow, it was on the outskirts of Moscow. And if you've ever found yourself in the outskirts of Moscow, nobody wants to speak English to you. And I felt very, very alone. I felt like a stranger. I felt, I understood what it was to be a foreigner. It was only for about six days, but that was long enough. But I've also spent a lot of time with people who are foreigners to this country. Strangers and folks, you know, we only have to look at the news to see that many, many people are coming to find refuge, are coming to find safety in the midst of our country. But the cultural differences are massive. The perspective on life is big. How to make sense of it. There are major communication issues. See, being a stranger in a land that is not your home is difficult. Agreed? Agreed. Being a foreigner in a place that is not your home is difficult. See, here, Peter is writing to a number of churches in different places. You see those five, uh, five, um, five six different places there. And these places are in modern-day Turkey, and they are made up of people who have been sent there by the Roman Empire. See, the Romans had a policy of colonizing regions that they had conquered by moving people into those regions. And it was Claudius, one of the emperors, is known for colonizing these specific places that Peter mentions. And the people that would have been sent would have been people who were non-citizens of Rome. Now, they would have been free people, but their citizenship would not have been found in the Roman Empire. And all these people would have been sent, dispersed, to live as foreigners, as free people, but not citizens of Rome. See, such people were perceived as foreigners both in the Roman Empire and the areas where they were sent from, and they were also perceived as foreigners in the areas they were sent. See, all these people that he's been writing to who are Christians are seen as foreigners because of this dispersion. They're trying to make sense of life in this strange land. But Peter here is also making reference to them, reference to them that they are also God's strangers. They're also God's strangers. See, the word dispersion in the Greek, and I'm going to have a go at this, all right? Disappora or something like that. Anyone know Greek? No? No? Oh, there we go. Thank you very much. Say that again. Diaspora. I was well off it. I was well off. You know what I mean? Thank the Lord for software. Diaspora. Okay. And to live like all the other nations. To the point where their sin pulled them further and further and further away from God. To the point that God dispersed them. They were exiled. They were sent into a foreign land. They were sent to a land which was their, not their own because of sin. 
they were dispersed and they were sent, many of them, and taken to Babylon. What's interesting, in chapter 5, verse 13, Peter signs off this letter by saying, I am in Babylon writing this letter, which is interesting because Babylon didn't exist when he wrote this letter. He's making reference to, I'm in Rome. He's making a comparison to the empire, the culture that all these people are living in, which is similar to the empire and the culture of Babylon back in the Old Testament. He's making reference to Babylon to say, look, there is a superpower of the day, a culture, a way of making sense of life which was different and contrary to what it meant to be God's people. And even though these people were Gentiles, he is showing them that they, like God's people Israel, are now strangers in a foreign land, not because of their sin, but because they have been set apart by Jesus himself. See, he's going to address for them what it means to live as God's people in a place, time, and culture when everything else seems to be in complete opposite to him. But folks, this reality for them and this reality for us should not be something that we are fearful of. Because it has always been God's intention to have a people for himself distinctive in the world. Amen? Set apart. Holy. See, Israel was called to be a people that displayed his goodness, that lived in ways according to his word, that created flourishing and blessing for people, both for those who were part and those outside, and those outside were to look in and go, we want a piece of that. There's something about the, the way they deal with suffering. There's something about the way that they love each other. There's something about the way men and women interact in marriage, which is different, and that brings a flourish and a life. We want a piece of that, but like what I've just said, they didn't live in that context. See, the Old Testament, it's clear that God chose those people to be his people. And what Peter is going to do right through this letter is to show these Gentile people who were once strangers to those promises are also now grafted in to those promises. They also are now these people that God has chosen in order to display his goodness to the world. And folks, when we come to realize that, when we come to see that we will truly recognize, even in the midst of the hostility, that we have no reason to be fearful because this is not our home. This is not our home. Everything around us is not how we are to make sense of what it is to live and to flourish as human beings. No, our home is what is to come. And we are God's strangers. We are God's exiles. We are, he says this word later on, sojourners traveling through, traveling through to something that is far greater. And as you look down through chapter one, what does he say? That there is something kept for us, something that will not fade, something that will not perish. There is something kept for us. And many of us will think that is heaven. No, that is a new creation kept in heaven. That when Jesus returns, he will bring this beautiful new creation with him and then as we live as God's people everything else will make sense around us amen folks we have nothing to be fearful of yes we are God's strangers here in a hostile world why because our identity has been changed we have a new family we are part of a, a greater kingdom and folks we have nothing to be fear because that is part of point number three God's definite plan 
God's definite plan. See, when you see there in verses 2, to those who are left in all those places, verse 2 it says, according to. According to. He says, you are elect exiles. You are God's strangers. Verse 2, according to four things. The knowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. This is a definite plan because of the foreknowledge of God the Father. Folks, what we experience is not a mistake. It's not a mistake. How we are to respond to this is not a reaction to a mistake. See, as we read foreknowledge, it could simply mean that God foreknew that we would choose God and be part of his people. You could read that, couldn't you? But that wouldn't be according to the foreknowledge of God. That would ultimately be according to the decision that I made. When actually there are verses all over the Bible, and even through what Peter preaches and what he says, that actually give us more to what is being said when he says we are his people according to his foreknowledge. It was in Acts chapter 2 when he stood before the Jewish people, and this is what he said, hear me. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, midst as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see that? The definite plan. It was planned. It was foreknown. And those who killed him are held responsible. You see that? As you read through the Bible, you even see in Ephesians. He also foreknows and he foreordains. Ephesians 1 tells us this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Do you see that? Before the foundation of the world, he chose you. Amen? Before the foundation of the world, he predestined you. And in Romans, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the first among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Folks, we can go into the Old Testament. That God chose Abraham to be a father of many nations. Israel. He chose him. It wasn't just that God was standing there going, I know Abraham will follow me. I know Steve Robbo will put his faith in me. And even Peter, 2 verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen generation. Folks, I want you to hear this. yes. We respond to the gospel message. Amen? We respond to the gospel message. But the reality and the truth, according to Scripture, is that conversion is sovereignty, the sovereignty of God and the invitation of God working simultaneously together. The God before the foundation of the world set his affection on you. He set his covenantal love and affection on you.
So Peter says to these churches, according to the covenantal love and affection, God foreknew, predestined, and chose you to be his. Amen? See, folks, to go deeper in this will take a lot more time. A lot, lot more time. But I want us to hold that there. We are God's people according to his foreknowledge, his definite plan. Amen? Amen. But also, it is according to the sanctification of the Spirit. See, God, God the Father set his affection on us, and the Spirit of God is the source of our sanctification. Now, sanctification usually refers to the progressive growth of holiness in Christ. But sanctification also, and in this context, means conversion to becoming a child of God, a follower of Christ, becoming a Christian. See, the Spirit sets apart God's people into a sphere of holiness, into a sphere of being distinctive so that believers are now holy and righteous in our standing before God and we are distinctive in the world that we find ourselves. Do you see that? See, we are his people according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but it is the work of the Spirit that sets us apart. It's the work of the Spirit that regenerates our hearts. It's the work of the Spirit that opens our minds. It's the work of the Spirit that opens our ears. It's the work of the Spirit that opens our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ in and through the words of the Father. Amen? Amen. Verse 8 of chapter 1. Though you have not seen him, you love him. It's the work of the Spirit. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Folks, we are his people according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the work and sanctification of the Holy Spirit. Why? For obedience to Jesus Christ. You see that? This is the work of God through the Spirit that enables us to be obedient to the truth of the gospel. That enables us to respond in faith, but also enables us to live in obedience to Jesus in this life, in a hostile world, living out what it is to be distinctive for his glory. For his glory. See, we can only live for Jesus because of the work of the Spirit. We are only Jesus' people and God's people because of the foreknowledge and the definite plan and choosing of God. Amen? Folks, I don't know about you, but I find that really liberating because if it's about my choice and about my work, I've already failed. There's no restoring, there's no confirming, there's no establishing of me. But what's wonderful is I am living in a context that, yes, anxiety is building up because there is hostility, but I am affirmed, confirmed, and established because I am who I am. You are who you are. All because God set his affection, the spirit moves, and therefore I'm able to live for him and live a life that is distinctive to those who do not know him. Are you with me? Are you with me? And we are able to live in obedience, both in our response to the gospel and our lives because of the gospel, because of the sprinkling with his blood. 
It's interesting that Peter uses the word sprinkling and not the shedding of the blood of Christ. It's interesting that if you know your Bibles, that's quite interesting. It's all about the shedding of blood. Even in the context of baptism, the picture of being immersed, completely covered, not just like a little sprinkle. See, folks, let me remind you again, because we are a forgetful people, the definite plan of God, the definite plan of God was to send his son, Jesus, to die in place of those of us who stand guilty of sin before God, which is all of us. It is the work of the Spirit to open our eyes to see this truth and this love. And it is the work of the Spirit to help us live in light of that. But it's the death and the resurrection of Jesus that confirms that and enables this to happen. But why sprinkling? See, throughout this letter, Peter will be encouraging the churches to live as God's people in the midst of suffering. In the midst of suffering. Now, when I say suffering... I'm talking about the suffering that comes for living for Jesus. That's what he's talking about. He is wanting them to know, and he is wanting us to know, that the promises of God made to the people of Israel in the Old Testament are just as much for us, that their intentions and the desires of God for Israel are just as much for us. And the covenant love and promises that he confirmed with Israel are the covenant love and promises that he also confirms with us. See, it's interesting, when you read in Exodus 24, Moses has just received the Ten Commandments, the law, the covenantal law of God, word of God that helps God people live. He's told them that he loves them. He's told them that he's chosen them. He's told them that they're a treasured possession. He's told them that they are the the, the delight of his heart. And he says, you want to live for me? This is what it looks like. And Moses takes the words and he reads the words, the covenants, the book of covenants before God's people. And all God's people said this, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. So then Moses took blood blood of sacrifices that have been made. Half of the blood have been put on the altar and the other half of the blood. And what he does, as the people say this, he throws the blood, sprinkles the blood all over the people who are saying, we will live for God in light of his word. We will live for him. And he throws the blood of sacrifice. See, the blood inaugurates the covenant both on the altar and the sprinkling of the blood of sacrifice signifies the forgiveness and cleansing that the people needed to stand in relationship to God. Folks, we are God's strangers in this world because his definite plan was to set his affections on people like you and me. And the work of the Spirit draws us in to see the truth of that and we are able to live in obedience in response to that and obedience in light of that but it's all because of the forgiveness and cleansing we receive because of the blood of Jesus the promises of God mean nothing without the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ brings broken and busted up people like you and me into the wonderful promises of God that we'll find out next week mean a living hope for us in the midst of a hostile world. Folks, we are living in a world that is hostile towards people who are Christians. If you don't see that, please, I ask, 
wake up to that. But our response is not to fight against that. Our response is to stand for the truth of what it is to be followers of Jesus, which is winsome and compelling. It is. And we have a living hope that is far greater than anything that this world can give us. A hope to be with him in a place where there is no pain and no suffering, where all the questions will be answered, all the tears will be wiped, and we will live in complete peace and overflowing joy in a new creation without sin, brokenness, death, and hell. Amen? And if we go into holy huddles and hide away and try to fight the ideology, the ideology of people who are blind to truth, we'll get nowhere. Rather, we are to live in light of the obedience of Christ and live out what it is to be free people. People who are free to love our enemies. People who are free to engage and be truly tolerant in a world that we find. Not the world's understanding of tolerance, but Jesus' understanding of tolerance. Truly tolerant to all mankind. That we display the glory of God as a people in and through how we live because of the truth of what we know as we pass through in a place that is not our own, encouraging people to join us for that wonderful new creation that is to come. And finally, number four, before Peter even gets into the details of what that means for them, he prays a prayer. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. See, it's a prayer that we all need to know, folks, as we live in this life. We need the grace of God to be multiplied in our lives. Amen? We need to know deeper and more intimately to know that we are who we are, all because of what Jesus has done for us. That even when we fail, even when we were weak, even, when we, even if we deny with our actions or even with our words, God graciously, graciously brings us back brings us closer. Folks, I want us to leave this place know, praying through for each other that the grace of God multiplies in our lives. When we're faced with suffering, when we're faced with hostility, it's easy to retreat, it's easy to run away, it's easy to huddle, or it's easy to fight wrongly. But when we get the grace of God in our lives, we actually come as servants. We actually come as loving people. We actually come who those even though others may speak evil of us, will not be able to deny our good works on the day of his visitation. Even though people can't make sense of decisions that we make and regarding life and flourishing, they will look in and they will say, can you please give me the reason that you have this hope? The prayer is that grace will be multiplied. But not only grace, peace also. In chapter 5, Peter says this to the churches. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. He exalts you whilst you cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Folks, anxiety is fear for the future. And in this context, if you're a Christian, that level of anxiety will be brewing up. If it's not for yourself, it will be for your children. What is the world that our kids are growing up in? What is this world? And Peter prays for these people 
And through the Spirit of God, it is a prayer for us that the grace and peace will be multiplied to us. So let me encourage you, let us live in humility, trusting God for all that he has done and all that he promises. And because of that, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter is praying that peace, that peace that surpasses all understanding will be multiplied. And we, as a church and as elders, are praying, as we step through the reality of our world, that grace and that peace will be multiplied in and through us. Folks, living for Jesus is tough. It is. But it's boss. Because in him we flourish. Both in our lives, both in our relationships, both in our engagement with the world, we flourish. And God graciously has shown us his definite plan that this is not a mistake and that he one day will confirm, affirm and establish us. What grace is mine that he who dwells in endless light called through the night to find my distant soul and from his scars poured mercy that would plead for me that I might live and in his name be known. So I will go wherever he is calling me. I lose my life to find my life in him. I give my all to gain the hope that never dies. I bow my heart, take up my cross, and follow him. What grace is mine to know his breath alive in me. Beneath his wings, my wakened soul may soar. All fear can flee, for death's dark night is overcome. My Savior lives and reigns forevermore. So I will go wherever he is calling me. I lose my life and find my life in him. I give my all to gain the hope that never dies. I bow my heart, take up my cross, and follow him. Cornerstone Church. God graciously knows our reality and graciously over the next eight weeks will show us that he is with us and that we can distinctively live for him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you and praise you for your goodness and your grace towards us. We thank you that you're a God who in your definite plan called us and calls us to be your people. And folks, we... We understand that as we come to God, we know that we live in a hostile world. And Father, you know that. Father, you are totally aware of this. But you graciously, in and through your Son, in the work of the Spirit, promised to be with us, promised never to leave us, and promised to sustain us. And we thank you that we have heard today that we are your strangers in this land according to your affectionate, predestined foreknowledge, according to the work of your spirit, and according to the sacrifice of your son, Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we are your people. Enable us to live for you and your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.